Well, good morning, church family. If you have your copy of God's Word, would you find the book of Exodus with me? And if you find the book of Exodus, I'd like you to find Exodus chapter 6, where today I'd like to finish our very first series through the book of Exodus. If you are a guest of ours, I know that you've already been welcomed. I know you've been blessed through the worship as I have been. I know you've been told that if you are new to our church, me and my wife would love to meet you at the conclusion of the service. But what you might not know is that we're walking through the book of Exodus verse by verse because we believe that's the most faithful way to preach God's Word. And we're going to spend a great deal of time in this book. And our first series of sermons have been entitled, God Sent a Man. Because the story of Exodus really revolves around the life of a very important figure in the formation of our faith. And of course, that's none other than Moses. Moses' life from the very beginning, from his birth, was one miracle of God's provision and faithfulness after another. And we come today to the conclusion of what I would call the opening act of the book of Exodus in chapter 6. And when we Think about the first six chapters of Exodus, whether you're new this morning or you're listening online or you've been with me. You know, one of the common threads that Moses has woven through this story, because he authored this book years after it took place, is the challenge and the courage it took to obey God in the face of fear and anxiety and worry and doubt. Fear, anxiety, worry, doubt, discouragement, those things are real. I don't know that I realized as a young man years ago how many people deal daily with anxiousness, with fear, with anxiety. And one of the misconceptions about dealing with fear and doubt and worry and anxiousness is that somehow if you experience these emotions, these feelings, these very real uh, um, experiences, that you're weaker or that you're inferior. Yet when you open your Bible, what you find is that one of the correlations between the greatest men and women of God who've done phenomenal things for the Lord is that every one of them had to do battle with fear with anxiousness, with anxiety, with doubt, with worry. And so the first way to overcome it is to reach a place where you acknowledge, okay, this is real. I really do deal with anxiousness. I really do deal with fear. I really do deal with worry. And, and, and at times, I deal with it in the context of trying to do the right thing. Now, of course, if you do the wrong thing long enough, you ought to worry about God. He's a holy God. He will not be sinned against without consequences. But what we find here is that Moses is trying to do the right thing. He's trying to obey the Lord. And as he obeys the Lord, he gets more and more and more opposition. Now, whenever you find somebody who's paralyzed in fear, who's eat up with anxiety, who's wallowing in worry, or who's dipping in doubt or discouragement, you can try to help them. And there are some very tried and true, ineffective ways to help people who are struggling. I mean, let's think about this for a moment. 
You can shame people. Well, you ought to be ashamed of yourself for being so worried, so fearful, so discouraged. Have you ever had somebody try to shame you? Has that worked for you? It's almost never worked for me when someone tries to shame me. It just multiplies my doubt. Well, I already felt bad about myself. Thank you for adding on. God bless you. You can yell at them. You know, you can scream and holler. I try this a lot in parenting. Very seldom is it effective. It makes me feel better, though, when I get it out. You know, one of the greatest lies that parents told that I didn't realize until I became a parent is when they're dishing out punishment and they say, this hurts me more than it hurts you. No, it feels good sometimes. I'm going to tell you. You can pile on guilt. Well, I can't believe you, you're eat up with fear. Don't you trust the Lord? You, you can guilt people, and that increases the worry. And then you can just beg and, and plead. And that, that just doubles down or drums up on the drama. I see this played out every summer at some swimming pool where some father is trying to get their kid to jump, you know. Don't you remember summer camp that had the high dive? And there was the one kid who was struggling and the entire camp is screaming and hollering, and some, some are saying, come on, don't be a chicken, and others are saying, you can do it, you can do it, and some are saying, come on, man, you're holding up the line. We've got to go in 10 minutes to the next activity, and they're screaming and shouting. And the more that the tension rises, the less likely that kid's going to jump off that diving board. We've all sat there with our little ones, perhaps a niece or a nephew in your life, a grandchild, and you've said, come on, sweetheart, come on. And that in and of itself is illustrative of what is perhaps the most powerful tool to deal with fear, worry, doubt, and anxiety. It's the gift of reassurance. Reassurance is not the relaying of new information. Reassurance is reminding someone of assurance, thus the word reassurance. Now, we've seen this in history in, in many ways and in many forms. I was thinking about this this week uh, when the Nazis had just about taken over all of Europe that was contiguous. For those of you from Pauline, that means it touched. <laughs> and the United Kingdom, which is an island, the United Kingdom was staring down at Hitler and his Gestapo marching through Europe. The Americas were not involved yet. This is prior to Pearl Harbor. And so the United States was operating in a foreign policy called isolationism. You do you and we do we. And Churchill was begging the world to get involved. He gave this famous speech in 1940, and he said this to the British people. The British Empire and the French Republic linked together in their cause and in their need will defend to the death their native soil, aiding each other like good comrades to the utmost of their strength. Even though large tracts of Europe and many old and famous states have fallen or may fall into the grip of the Gestapo and all the odious apparatus of Nazi rule, we shall not flag or fail. We shall go on to the end. We shall fight in France. We shall fight on the seas. We shall defend our island, whatever the cost may be. 
We shall fight on the beaches. We shall fight on the landing grounds. We shall fight in the fields and in the streets. We shall fight in the hills. We will never surrender. And even if which I do not for a moment believe this island or a large part of it were subjugated and starving, then our empire beyond the seas, armed and guarded by the British fleet, would carry on the struggle until in God's good time the new world with all its power and might steps forth to rescue and the liberation of the old. And most people believe that Churchill rallying the United Kingdom to stand was the turning point in the Western world conquering the wickedness that, of course, was known as Hitler and the Nazis. Fast forward a few decades, and the night before his assassination in Memphis, Tennessee, 1968, Martin Luther King said these words, I don't know what will happen now. We've got some difficult days ahead, but it doesn't matter with me now because I've been to the mountaintop. And I don't mind, like anybody, I would like to live a long life. Longevity has its place, but I'm not concerned about that now. I just want to do God's will. He's allowed me to go up to the mountaintop. And I've looked over and I've seen the promised land. I may not get there with you, but I want you to know tonight that we as a people, we will get to the promised land. And I'm happy tonight. I'm not worried about anything. I'm not fearing any man. My eyes have seen the glory of the coming of the Lord. The next day, he would be assassinated on the balcony of a hotel in Memphis, Tennessee. Men like that, men and women from history, have stood in the midst of incredible adversity and looked at people they were charged to lead and reassured them. And in just a few moments, when I conclude this message, I'm going to ask you to take a hard look into your life and see what areas might need the reassurance of God. Because I don't have to come up with any new information. I don't have a better gospel to give you. I don't have a better God to preach to you. I don't have a better Bible to unlock Everything we need in our life to honor the Lord has already been given to us. This does not mean that I have the answer to all my questions. It doesn't mean that all my situations have been resolved. It doesn't mean that I somehow have immunity from future struggles. But one of the great messages of our faith is that God doesn't short us. He doesn't just dribble or give crumbs to his people. Rather, he gives us through a relationship with his son and the inspiration of his word and the glory of his church, everything we need. So when we find ourselves struggling, when we find ourselves dealing with fear and anxiety and worry and doubt, whether we've brought it on ourselves through poor choices or we're facing difficulties outside of our control, sometimes we just need some good old-fashioned reassurance. And when God chooses to reassure, he does it in glorious fashion. Exodus chapter 6 really divides into three parts. The first part of this chapter is a dialogue that's continuing to happen. Now, just to catch you up, Moses receives his call in the wilderness through the burning bush 
And God says, you're the one I've chosen. Go back to Egypt. Rally the people. Tell them, I've heard their moans and their cries, and I'm going to lead them out of captivity, of slavery, and of bondage. And, and Moses reluctantly accepts. He goes back to Egypt. He does exactly what God says, and initially, things are going really, really good. And then we get to chapter 5, our sermon last week, where we dealt with the door slam. Where right when he's ready to move forward in God's will, all his plans crumble when Pharaoh says, yeah, no, not going to let you go. And at this point, his own people who were rallying behind him in chapter 4 have turned against him in chapter 5. And we get these verses in the last few words of chapter 5, verse 22. Then Moses turned to the Lord and said, O oh Lord, why have you done evil to this people? Why did you ever send me? For since I came to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has done evil to this people, and you have not delivered your people at all. That's how five ends. Five ends with Moses saying, I don't know why you sent me, and I don't know what you're doing, and I'm struggling to trust you, and I would rather you have not even called me. This is the sentiment of the end of chapter 5. This is where Moses is in need of some divine reassurance. So part of chapter 6 is this dialogue that continues to happen. God speaks and Moses answers. And we find Moses answering the same way over and over again. Look at verse 9 of chapter 6. Moses spoke and thus to the people of Israel, but they did not listen. Moses, because of their broken spirit and harsh slavery. In verse 12, but Moses said to the Lord, behold, the people of Israel have not listened to me. How then shall Pharaoh listen to me? For I am of uncircumcised lips. That's, of course, a metaphor to his impurity, his impurity before God. He's saying, I'm unable to carry out what you've called me to do. If you go to the end of chapter 6 and you look, we see that it ends very much the way it begins. The Scripture says in verse 27, it was they who spoke to Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, after bringing out the people of the land of Egypt, and Moses and Aaron. And then we get to verse 30. Behold, I am of uncircumcised lips. How will Pharaoh listen to me? We've been down this path before. God says, do it. Moses tries it. Moses fails. He comes back to God and says, God, I can't do it. They're not listening. And this dialogue's happening. And then in the middle of the chapter, there's this genealogy. And this is what throws us off sometimes when we get serious about God's Word. A brother came up to me this morning and said, hey, I've enjoyed the reading plans the church's writing team has produced. It always encourages my heart to know that our people are in their Bible. And when you get in your Bible weekly, you're going to come across some of the most inspiring passages you've ever encountered. And then you're going to come to genealogies and lists, and you're going to be like, Lord, how do I journal about this? What do I put in my quiet time for this today. I think one of those is found in chapter 6. Look at verse 14. In chapter 6, verse 14, Moses records the heads of their father's houses. And then from verse 14 all the way to about verse 
25 is a genealogy of all the people that Moses was going to lead out of Egypt into the promised land. Now, when you first read it, it is exactly that. It's a genealogy. There are lists of men. There are lists of wives. There are lists of descendants. And some of them's age is given. And you're thinking, well, what, what does this mean? But if you're willing to dig a little deeper, if you're willing to get you a good, solid study Bible, maybe pick up a commentary, maybe Google a reputable website, you'll begin to find that these genealogies actually have some significance. J just a few notes about this genealogy. It starts with Reuben, who's Israel's firstborn. Now, sometimes when you come to church, the pastor wrongly assumes that everybody understands where Israel came from because Israel can mean a place, Israel can mean a people, and Israel can mean a person. Do you know why? Because in your Bible, Israel is a person, Israel is a people, and Israel is a place. Israel was the name that God gave Jacob. When God renamed Jacob Israel, and from Jacob's descendants, God said, I'm going to birth a people who will carry your name. You know that. When you were born, most of you were given three names. One you go by, one nobody knows, and the name that is associated with your family. Your first name, your middle name, and your last name. And ladies, when you marry, unless you drive a hybrid car or something, when you marry, you... <laughs> uh, you don't even have to pay for that. That's good. <laughs> I'll be like dealing all this genealogy tomorrow at work. That's what you're going to say. I just love my little preacher. You know what he said. So... <laughs> And a couple of you with hyphenated names are offended. Wow, I just, you know, I'm, I'm, just, I'm just messing with you. I have a spiritual gift of pushing buttons. I, I, I'm so good at it, I'm glad I'm saved. But when you get your last name, when you change it, you are saying, I'm coming from a family that I'm very proud of in many cases, and I am joining a family, and then you join that legacy. Well, th this is why the first person mentioned is Reuben, who is Israel's firstborn, which connects the people, which connects the people that Moses is leading to the covenant. It also, in verse 25, ends with Aaron's grandson, Phinehas. Now, why is that important? Because you can trace Phinehas all the way into Judges chapter 20, which allows people in the books following Judges to connect back to their lineage of Israel. It honors Aaron's true priesthood, which will become a subject we're going to deal with later. This is a really, really big deal because Aaron needs to be seen as the high priest to the people of God so that he can relay to God or relay to the people what God's will is. But it also places men like Korah. Why? Because later we're going to see a rebellion in the wilderness led by the tribes of Korah. And this tells us they were a part of the original group that left. It connects Moses to a priestly family. Outsiders are included in this list. This is fascinating. There are Canaanites mentioned in this list, and this is important for two reasons. One, one of the problems that Israel will face, the people, not the person, the people, is pride. 
And one of the problems with their pride is that they'll place their pride in the purity of their genealogy. They'll become arrogant. Listen, God never chooses to love someone because of their ethnicity, their culture, or their race. God didn't choose the Jews to become his chosen people because somehow they are superior. The scripture teaches that every human being is made in the image of God and by being the image bearer of God, the imago Dei, that's the image bearer of God. By being the image bearer of God, we have intrinsic value. No, no, no. God chose Israel to bless the nations. Israel was to be this nomadic nobody that God made a somebody to tell everybody who God is. And so when they began to become prideful and arrogant about their genealogy, they weren't reading their Bible because their Bible showed that even their own genealogy wasn't pure Jewish blood. There were Canaanites in the lineage. We also find that it highlights several outsiders, including Canaanite women and highlights marriage, which is very important a little bit later in the purity of the people as they interact with the individuals they come in contact with in their journey to the promised land. All that's in that genealogy. But I ain't got time to preach all that this morning. I really want to camp on verses 2 through 8. Because it's here where divine reassurance lives. Look what the scripture says beginning in verse 2. God spoke to Moses. Why does this matter? Because at the end of chapter 5, Moses is speaking to God and it's not going well. There's no warm fuzzy here. But the Lord said, look at verse 1 and then verse 2. Now you shall see what I will do to Pharaoh. It's almost like, yeah, Moses, I let you fail. I let the first effort crumble in front of you because I wanted to get you ready for act two. That was act one. Act two is that you're not in control and Pharaoh's not in control. You're going to see what I'm going to do. Now you shall see what I will do for with a strong hand, he will send them out. Now, wait a minute now. Hold on. Moses went to Pharaoh and asked to be let out. He asked permission because he has no authority over Pharaoh. All he can do is ask as the spokesman of God. But God knew all along this request will not go over well. He sent Moses to set up what you and I will see, which is Pharaoh's not going to relent. Pharaoh's not going to have a change of heart on his own. Pharaoh is going to be forced by God to let the people of God go due to the divine judgment of God. Why does this matter? Because in the ancient world, Pharaoh was to be worshipped. He was put forward as a deity. When you study Egypt, ancient Egypt, you see the extent to which they took to preserve their Pharaohs, to build immaculate tombs, to preserve their bodies. I mean, it is from the Egyptians that you and I even know what a mummified body is and the idea of preserving them for the afterlife and their rule and their reign. And yet what God is saying is he's just a man and I'm going to force him to send the people out. That's what verse 1 says. Look at it again. 
and with a strong hand, he will drive them out of this land. So God says, Moses, what's about to happen is that he's going to go from saying no to saying go. And then look at verse 2. God spoke to Moses and said to him, here it comes, I am the Lord. I appear to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob as God Almighty. But by my name, the Lord, I did not make myself known to them. Look at verse 6. Say therefore to the people of Israel, I am the Lord. Now look at verse 7. I will take you to my people and I will be your God and you shall know that I am the Lord. Look at verse 8, third phrase. I will give it to you for a possession. I am the Lord. Now look at verse 28, verse 29 rather. The Lord said to Moses, I am the Lord. You want to know where divine reassurance lives? The best kind of reassurance. Divine reassurance lives first in the identity of God. I think this is fascinating, and for those of you who enjoy taking notes, the I am the Lord phrases that I just read to you, I've put them on the screen for you. They're in verse 2, 6, 7, 8, and verse 29. I think it's fascinating that, that the first thing God does to Moses is he says, I need to remind you who I am. Not what you've done, not what Pharaoh's done, not what you've said, not what the Jewish elders have said, not what Pharaoh has said, and not even what I have said about the future. I'm going to start with this. Moses, I am the Lord. If there is one thing I could say that men and women of strong faith have in common, it is not that they have similar personalities, they vary. Or that they have similar testimonies. Some of the strongest Christians I know have only been a Christian for a few years. It, it, it's not that they have uh, a track record of being holy and pure their entire lives. Some of the most godly people I have ever met lived like the devil for many years before they came to Christ. It's not because they're successful or wealthy. I've met some people of extreme wealth who had a humble and genuine walk with the Lord. And I've met people in extreme poverty who had a humble and genuine walk with the Lord. No, 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 no. The common denominator of people who have a deep and abiding faith is not them. It's in their perspective of who their God is. They know who he is. And something happens here in verse 3 that scholars debate a great deal. Look what it says again in verse 3. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty. Now, if you translate that in the Hebrew, or translate it from the English to the Hebrew, if you go back to the Hebrew, it is what we have sang before. You may have remembered this song. It was famous in the 80s, El Shaddai. El Shaddai. It is God Almighty. In fact, there's a derivative there where it could also be understood as God of the mountain. You know, when, when human beings think about grandeur and power and beauty and they want to describe it in something physical, a lot of times they think about it in terms of mountains. I have never stood in Kansas and just stared. Been through Kansas many times. Beautiful state. Beautiful state. Lots of fun things to do in Kansas, especially if you're an outdoorsman. 
But you don't go to, you don't ever say to your wife, let's go to the plains of America and just stare. I mean, it is kind of cool to see. I remember the first time I went out west as a child. It's the first time I'd ever seen a train from start to finish. I'm from the south. There's a gap of trees that open up and a cross thing that comes down. And then the caboose goes by and you go through. I'd never seen all 150 cars from start to finish till I went out west and see. And it's just flat. But that's not what I think about when I think about the American West. But I could sit and stare at the Teton Mountains for a week. There is just a grandeur and a might to a mighty mountain. In fact, God's going to meet Moses on a mountain. And so for human beings and trying to grapple with the greatness of God, this God of the mountain, this God Almighty, El Shaddai, God says, I told Abraham that's who I was. I told Jacob that's who I was. I told all your descendants, Moses, that who I was. But I'm revealing to you something more about my character. Look at verse 3 again. He says it this way. He says, I appeared to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob as God Almighty. But by my name, the Lord, Yahweh, by my name, the Lord, I did not make myself known to them. Now, this is where scholars get all kinds of rabbit holes to chase here. There are references in Genesis where God is referred to as the Lord, Yahweh, Jehovah. So, so what does he mean that Moses has somehow been introduced to God in a way in which Abraham did not know? I'm going to solve it for you right here. Here it comes. El Shaddai, God Almighty, is the God who presents himself as creator, as the God who presents himself as sustainer as the God who presents himself as the superior God of heaven, the one true living God, the maker of all things, past, present, and future. And that God appears to Abraham and appears to the forefathers of the faith, the patriarchs, and he establishes his provision and his might. In other words, he's a promise maker. This is what I'm going to do for your people. But when God personally identifies himself as the Lord, he now becomes the promise keeper. So Abraham knew God, the promise maker. Moses is going to see God, the promise keeper. Because at Abraham's death, Israel was not a mighty nation liberated in its own promised land. But by the time Moses dies, he will see the promised land and in one generation past him, they will inherit the land that is to be theirs. This matters because I cannot solve scenarios. Now listen to me. There is no Christian who can be pre-informed of how to react in every situation you're going to face. N not one of you can be prepared beforehand to know in advance every fear, every worry, every point of anxiousness, every failure, every struggle. But you can be prepared by having a firm grasp of who your God is. The identity of God in crisis is what keeps you, not what he does, but who he is. 
And it's interesting that through this chapter, as God is answering Moses, he's saying, Moses, all of your fear is rooted in you forgetting, I am the Lord. Pharaoh's not the Lord. Those Jewish men and women who were behind you in chapter 4 and who are against you in chapter 5, they're not in charge of your life. You're not in charge of your life. I am the Lord. If you were to give me 30 seconds with any person, and you were to give me the ability or the opportunity to ask them one question, it's easy. You don't even have to study for it. If I could look with any person with a, in their eyes with some sincerity and ask them a question, it would be simply this. Do you know the Lord? Because when you step out of this world, whether you're headed into your grave or whether he returns, knowing him is everything. Do you know him? Not know about him? not revere him, you're not a fan, you're not in this club, do you know who he is? The identity of God is really the building block for reassurance, but reassurance also lives in the activity of God. Look at verse 3. I love how this falls out. He says these words in verse 3. I appeared, those of you that love the English language, notice the past tense. I've already done it. I appeared. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as Almighty God. But by my name, they did not, I did not make myself known to them. I also established, notice past tense, I've already done this, my covenant. When did that happen? Well, it's in Genesis. I'll put it on the screen. This is what the Bible says, the book of Genesis, chapter 12, verses 2 through 3. I will make you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. Remember I told you when Israel becomes prideful of their lineage, they're missing the point. God did not choose them that they would hoard his blessing. God chose them that they would give his blessing away. What's the New Testament application? If you're here today and you're born again, you did not save you. God saved you. But God did not save you to set you. God saved you to use your life that others may see his glory at work. If God did not intend to use your life to point more people to Christ, he would kill you the day he saved you. But if you live one moment past your salvation, your purpose is to enjoy his presence, bring glory and honor to him, and let your life be a testimony to the goodness of God that can be received in anyone's life by faith and repentance. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Because in Abraham came Israel. In Israel came a covenant people. In the covenant people comes a virgin. In her womb comes my Savior. In his death I live. So the covenant of all people being blessed way back in Genesis is connecting Christ to the redemptive plan and helping us to see this was the point. I established, but that's not the only way it is that I'll put a little list on the screen. He not only established, he heard. That's what the Bible says in verse 4. I also established my covenant with them 
to give them the land of Canaan, a land which they lived as sojourners. Moreover, I have heard, verse 5, the groaning of the people of Israel, whom the Egyptians hold as slaves, and I have remembered my covenant. So watch the sequence here because this is going to encourage you this week. First, when I'm discouraged, I need to remember he's the Lord. He is God. Secondly, I need to take inventory of what he's already done. One of my favorite songs written in the last few years is simply titled, What He's Done. This is the lyric, the chorus. What he's done, what he's done. Oh, the glory and the honor to the Son. My sins are forgiven, past tense. My future is heaven. I praise God for what he's done. This song is sort of an answer to the angst that frustrates Christians when we only look to God for what we want him to do. And we forget what he's done. One of the things I say to people if they meet me early in the morning, hey, how are you this morning? I always say, I woke up saved. I mean, you know, today could be hard. It could stink. But I woke up redeemed. It's already done. And when I live with a proper connection to what he's already done, then my reassurance comes in his completed activity. So we have it this way. Reassurance lives in the identity of who he is, in the activity of what he's done, and finally, in the certainty of what he will do. You ever had somebody giving you a lecture about some area of undiscipline in your life? Maybe you, you're whining about your weight gain, or you need to make more money, or you'd like a promotion, and you try to get yourself motivated, and you go on Instagram, or I certainly don't recommend it, but TikTok, and you... You find somebody that's giving you these motivational talks of the 27 things you're supposed to do before 5 a.m. They keep adding to them. You know, I'm supposed to get up naked and stand on grass and look at the sun. Then I got to get in a cold bath and then a hot bath. I got to eat a raw egg. I got to coat myself in avocado oil. Then I got to, they just keep adding on the list. Man, I'm just trying to get to the toilet and the coffee pot and to work. You know what I mean? And so, the, the, and that's sort of the, the three-pronged cycle to my day. Coffee, toilet, work, coffee, toilet, work, coffee, toilet, work. And so, so when, you, when, you, when you think about that, you, you, begin to, you begin to hear things like, well, you just need more willpower in your life. You just, you just had a little more willpower. Now, I, I do believe in motivating people, and I, I'm raising children. I'm trying to craft their hearts. You know I tell them all the time what I say to my kids, do not let life happen to you, happen to life. I dropped my daughter off this week at school. She's a freshman. The last thing I said to her was, hey, you go in and let's go and somebody's hurting today. You go love them. Be kind to them. I appreciate your English comp. Your, your geometry matters. But you be kind and gracious to somebody who's hurting today. That's what matters most. It's the last thing I say to her. So I'm all about motivating. But this is where I think pop psychology and new age mind manipulation differs from a Christian grounded in the word of God. Can I just give you some willpower this morning? Let me give you some. Willpower for you and me is not first and foremost in our own self-discipline. It's in a robust confidence in what God said he will do. I, I love how the passage ends this way. Look at verse 7. He says in verse 7, these words, I will take you to be my people. 
and I will be your God. And you shall know that I am the Lord your God who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. Look at verse 8. Here it comes again. I will bring you into the land that I swore to give Abraham and to Isaac and to Jacob. Second phrase, verse 8. I will give it to you for a possession. I am the Lord. Now, if you were to take all those wills and you put them in a list, which I've done for you, I will bring you out. I will deliver you. I will redeem you. I will be your God. I will bring you into the land I swore to you. I will give it to you. Up to this point, they never owned anything. What is the word that they continue to use in the Old Testament? We are sojourners. We're passing through. We're at the mercy of the owners. We're not owners. At this point, they're not even servants. They're slaves. And God says, I will bring you out. I will deliver you. I will redeem you. I will be your God. I will bring you into the land. I swore to you. I will give it to you. Notice the pattern here. Notice the character of the God that we worship here at Church at the Mill. Notice that what he does for Israel is but a foreshadow of salvation. What happens in salvation? He brings you out of sin and death and shame. What does he do? He delivers you into the kingdom of his son. He says, I'm taking you out of a place of being my enemy and my adversary to being my daughter or my son. I'm delivering you into a citizenship not of this world. And he does that because he redeems you. you you're lost and a payment must be paid and the redemption, of course, is given in his son. And then once he redeems you, he can know you personally. So you will be his and he will be your God. And then... Once you've been brought out of sin and delivered into the kingdom of God and redeemed by the blood and personally connected to God, you then live with the certainty that one day you'll be delivered from this earth into a new heaven and a new earth that you have never owned before, but you won't be a visitor. You won't be a guest. You will be a son and daughter of the Most High God, and you will be an owner of the new heaven and the new earth. And the Bible goes so far as to say, you will rule and reign with him. Be reassured with that kind of willpower. He will do it. So give me a woman in this room who wakes up this week and says, fear's coming, anxiety's coming, doubt's coming, discouragement's coming, it's coming. But when I meet it, I'm going to stop. Before I psychoanalyze myself with some man-centered, false truth, I'm going to remember who my God is. He's introduced himself to me. He says, I am the Lord. I'm going to remember what he's already done. And I'm going to remember what he promises he will do. So if I build my life on his identity... I rest in his activity, and I hope in his certainty. What can man do to me? Would you receive his reassurance this morning? I don't know what area of your life where doubt and fear and anxiety holds you back. It may be something you're struggling with, you need to repent of, it may be a situation and a circumstance where you were a victim, a survivor. I don't know. I have no word from God to tell you you'll never feel fear. You'll never feel anxiety. You'll never feel worry. 
fact, I actually have the opposite of that. I promise you those things are going to keep coming at you. But on the authority of God's Word, you don't have to live in fear, anxiety, discouragement, doubt. You can be assured. When you have that kind of assurance, it's just blessed, isn't it? I seem to remember my grandmother saying that. Blessed assurance. Would you bow your head with me? Just stay seated where you are. I want you to think of that one situation in your life where you could use some reassurance. I want you to receive God's Word. Dwell on the truth. For just a moment, would you deal with him about it? It is good to pause and be reminded of how much we need to be reassured. Reassurance can come from your word in so many ways, but it lives in your identity, your activity, and your certainty. I'm so glad you're not bound by my performance, but rather you are bound by your promise. I'm so glad that my previous track record does not determine whether or not you want to use me today. I'm so thankful that I no longer have to be defined by what I was or where I've been, what I've said or what I've done, but rather our identity is in what you have done, what you have said, where you have been, and how faithful you are. And church family, I'm going to say amen and we're going to leave. When we do, I want you to know our prayer room is open if you'd like to continue a conversation with someone about your walk. We try to present the gospel every week, but I just want to say, if you don't know the Lord, you don't have to leave here today without him. You step into that prayer room and you say, I want to know the Lord. You'll be blown away by the sensitivity, the kindness, the confidentiality that you'll receive. Many of you know the Lord, and he is calling you to act. Fear has paralyzed you. Maybe you've been numbed. You need to do something about it. I'm telling you, when you do, it won't go smoothly. But be reassured. God is faithful. He is worth doing hard things. Live in his identity. Celebrate his activity. And be motivated by his willpower in your life. Father, I love you. Thank you for who you are. I pray you help us be a people who ooze reassurance in our lives because of your great work. In Jesus' name, God's people said, amen. God bless you. You are dismissed.